0: Ephesians 4, 7-10 But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far Above all the heavens that He might fill all things, the word of the Lord. All right, good morning guys. Good morning. Welcome to Trailhead. My name' is Steve. I am one of the leaders here, and I uh, just want to wish you a Merry Christmas. Hope you guys have big plans this week. Spend some time with family. Eat. More time with family. more eating, right? You, you don't look very excited. <laughs> well, Merry Christmas. I hope you guys enjoy it, you know, and I hope you get a lot of good food. Um, You know what I think is a little bit ironic about Christmas is that we prepare to celebrate the birth of Christ by shopping at places like Walmart. I don't know if you've been to Walmart before Christmas. Anybody? Some of you are like, not a chance. I would never do that. I mean, you go there. It's not a pleasant experience. Let's just be honest, right? Good prices, but nobody's smiling. Right. And especially like a weekend like this, man. Um, you'll get shoved. People will take stuff out of your cart. You know, like when you look away, things will disappear. Um and 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 the parking lot alone is enough to to drive you away. Um, I was there the other day and and um was was pulling up to pull into a parking spot and it was clearly my spot, right? It's it's on the right, and I'm coming down, blinker on, right? There, there it is. It's mine. And uh, here comes this SUV, you know, it's like vroom like left turn right in front of me, takes a spot, right? And, and um, me, uh, being a pastor, felt like climbing out of my car and, and you know, giving them the right hand of fellowship. Um, didn't do that. Instead, did the slow drive. You know what I'm talking about? The slow drive-by where you're just like giving them the eyes, right? So I'm driving by and I'm, I'm looking and, um, and lo and behold, it's this little grandma sitting, giving me the eyes, you know, <laughs> Like, she's looking at me like, you want to stop? I'll give you the smackdown. I mean, that's the look that I'm getting. That's the experience of, of shopping Walmart before Christmas. I mean, you want to know why the world needs a savior? Go hang out at Walmart before Christmas. No joke. I mean, it's all the depravity of human nature on display, including in your own heart, right? I mean, even as you're sitting back, like, look, here's the people of Walmart. It's your own heart rising up in judgment and self-righteousness. Uh, here's the deal, you guys. It's no wonder people are stressed, Um, let's just be honest. The holidays a lot of times stretch us to our limit. They put stress on our finances, um, our time, our relational capacity. Um, we are forced into small confined spaces with lots of people. And sometimes those people are wonderful and we love spending time with them. And sometimes those people aren't, (laughs) they're a little bit more challenging. Um, and it's difficult and uh and there's stress involved, and um for some people, holidays like christmas are um honestly they it stirs up hard memories, hurtful memories. Some people are dealing with um solitude and isolation, and they look at everyone 's joy and they feel like they 're outside of it. The holidays can be very challenging for some it's it's an outpouring of joy, and I hope that is true for you and i and I know that that all of us though can at times find ourselves financially tight or emotionally ragged or find our time being stretched in ways that make us very uncomfortable. And um, we just find that the well's getting shallow. You know, you keep going back to the well to <clears throat> to renew your joy and increase your energy and keep yourself, and, and pretty soon sometimes it just feels like the well's going empty, you know? And, and, and yet there's a lot more holiday to go, <laughs> and you need a lot more coming from it. And what I want to kind of throw at you this morning, we're going to unpack Ephesians. We're working our way through the book of Ephesians, but... Um, I want to remind you that the well's a lot deeper than you, than, than you know. Um, and, and, and if it doesn't seem like it's deep enough, it's probably because you're dipping in it in the wrong way. You're just not approaching it in the right way. And so what I want to do this morning is hopefully encourage you um, as, we, as we think about Christmas, honestly, and, and uh, what we got going on, and, and let the text kind of, I think, call us back to the mystery of Christmas, um, that God's grace goes way deeper than we give it credit for. It has a lot more power to encourage, to strengthen, to transform than we give it credit for. Um, now, our text this morning may not seem like a Christmas text. Uh, this definitely is not a traditional Christmas text, um, but actually it is. Uh, we we um, tend to pick books and work our way straight through them. It doesn't mean that we would never take a time off to, to do a special message, especially at a time like Christmas. But as I was studying, what I found was our text this morning in Ephesians, um, not by my plan, it just happened this way, actually is perfect for this morning because at the heart of it is a focus on the incarnation, a focus on the on the center of Christmas when when God became man. Take a look at verses um, 8 through 10. It says, therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Paul's quoting from um, Psalm 68. We'll unpack that a little bit more in a minute. But Paul's going to unpack what he's focusing on in verses 9 And 10, he says, in saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions, comma, the earth. Notice he's not talking about, uh, some interpreters would take this to mean, um, you know, after, after his crucifixion, he descended into Hades or to hell or to, that's not what it's focusing on at all. It's talking about the incarnation, not after the cross. It's saying that he descended into the lower regions, comma, the earth. I think the ESV has the punctuation right there. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. He is now currently highly exalted. He has ascended. He fills all things. He is the all-glorious one, right? But what what Paul is drawing our focus on is that um, while our Savior has been infinitely exalted and while he will be infinitely glorified and praised and he will fill all things, The path he took to that place was not a king's path. The path he took to that exaltation was not an exalted path. He's focusing on the the paradox of the incarnation. That that you have a king, not being born in a palace, but being born in in an animal stable. That, that you have the Savior of the world not even being noticed by the world. And worse than that, those who do notice him, John 1 tells us that he was rejected by his own. That, that, that he was not only not noticed, but he was rejected and ultimately betrayed. The path he took to exaltation was not an exalted path. It was a path of radical humility that displayed a radical generosity. He came from the highest place of glory. Scripture tells us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one one God, three who's, one what, um, a mystery, a biblical mystery, but God existing in a self-contained dance of joy and glory. And yet He who was equal with God and was God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped and held on to selfishly, but instead humbled himself and took on the form of a servant. He went from glory and descended in humility. He has since ascended, After his resurrection, to the highest place of highest praise. And he will be exalted and he will get his glory. But the path he took there to get there was the path of incarnation. And that path required everything. In the incarnation, God was giving a gift to the world. And it was the gift of himself. He he was a, a baby born on mission. Now, it's a source of joy um, when babies are born, right? And we, we know how our story ends. We don't like to talk about it. It's not a pleasant reality, but it is a reality. We know that everyone's story ends in the same way, and it's a tragedy when it occurs, especially when it occurs too soon. And we feel that tragedy intensely, as we should. What you need to realize is that Jesus was unique among all the babies born because He was born, in fact, to die. We all die, but we're born to live. That's why it's a tragedy when we die. He was born to die. He was born on mission to ultimately live the life we should have lived, but didn't and couldn't because of our sin. And to die the death we deserve to die because we had rebelled against God, even though He hadn't. He was born to be our substitute, to fully identify himself with us and our broken and lost humanity without himself being broken and lost. And then ultimately to be our substitute in judgment, to take what we deserved, to pay a debt we could never pay so that we could be forgiven. When Jesus was born, he came to die, to redeem what was lost by paying the price we could never pay. And this is why Christmas isn't just about a cute baby Jesus, manger scenes, warm and cuddly feelings, because God didn't come to be cuddled. He came to go to war. The incarnation was a declaration of war. And when he came, he was God on mission, being born behind enemy lines with the purpose of ultimately leading people to freedom. And I think that's why Paul focuses on Psalm sixty-eight, that quote in verse eight, where it says, "Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men." Now, Psalm sixty-eight is is a is a a, a psalm of deliverance, where um, it's a cry that God will deliver the people of Israel from their enemies, and and it looks back to the way God had delivered them in the past. And buried in this psalm is this verse, and and the. Um, Jewish people had interpreted it in different ways at different times, but, but we recognize the allusion. It's, it's, it's an allusion to a king who goes out to war and comes back victorious. When a king goes out to war um, and, and conquers a, a competing nation, a nation that would seek to overrun them, a nation that would seek to enslave them, when he conquered them, he would come back into the city in, in a gospel proclamation. The word gospel, evangelion, means an announcement of good news. It's a a phrase of victory. He would come back into the city with a train of captives behind him, the people that had been defeated in war. And and these people, um, in some cases, would be assimilated into the nation. In other cases, they would be enslaved. And the king would also come with gifts, with plunder. He would, as, as, after he had defeated these people who had been a threat to the nation, he would plunder this nation. He would take their possessions and their wealth, and he would come and distribute it among his people. He came with a message of victory, with a train of captives and gifts, which were the, the tokens and the sign of that victory. Psalm 68 is comparing... Jesus to this victorious warrior king. The one who is returning from battle with a train of captives. And the Israelites always would would take that illusion in a sense to to identify all of the enemies of Israel. All the people out there who are the bad guys. You have a competing agenda. You are the enemy. You are the one that will... and, And when they interpret this psalm, that's who they would see following Jesus, the defeated ones. We're the victorious ones because we're on God's side. They're the defeated ones, and they're following God in, in procession, in, hum- in, in humiliation. I don't think that's right. I don't think that's what the passage means. I, as I was studying this, I came across um, a group of scholars that um, tied this to Numbers 18 and, and um, a couple other passages in pretty powerful ways that really kind of um, blew my mind and, 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 and grabbed me. And, and let me just show you. Numbers 18 says this. And behold, I have taken your brothers, the Levites. The Levites were one of the 12 tribes of Israel, and he's speaking to the other tribes of Israel. And he's saying, behold, I've taken your brothers, the Levites, from among the people of Israel. That word taken means captivated. I have conquered them. I have taken them. They are my captives. They are a gift to you, given to the Lord to do the service of the tent of meeting. What Numbers 18 is is saying is, is that God had conquered the Levites. When when the 12 tribes of Israel came into the land of Israel, the Levites were not given land. And God basically said, I have conquered them. They are mine. They are following in my trail. And now I am giving them back to you. And I'm giving them back to you so that I can be glorified and you can get the benefit. Now, how does that make sense? God conquering his own people. What, What does that mean that he would take the Levites Captive And how does that apply to us? Well, here's the deal. I, I think ultimately God took the Levites captive to set them free because they were enslaved in ways they didn't even understand. And God conquered them and took them captive to set them free. Why did he have to conquer them? Because their hearts were enemy territory. The enemies weren't out there. The enemies in here. The Levites were like every other human ever born. They were born with a natural, sin-bent tendency of rebellion against God. Their hearts were the home of their treason. We're all born cosmic traitors. Our first parents were cosmic traitors and we are cosmic traders. How do we know that? Because we are continually trying to put ourselves in the place of God. Continually. And you're like, nah, Steve, I don't do that. Yeah, you do. <laughs> yeah, you do. We're, we are pathologically self-centered people. I mean, honestly, aren't we? What do we do that isn't for us? what do we do that that isn't in the end somehow for us? Even, I'm going to propose to you, even your acts of service, even your acts of self-sacrifice are ultimately motivated for your personal joy or your personal sense of well-being, your own personal sense of worthiness. How do I know that? Because let me ask you something. Will there come a point where the sacrifice is too great? Will there come a point where you're like, I am done giving. I am done serving. You know what that point is? That's the point where it's no, the reward no longer outweighs the sacrifice. Where what you get out of it isn't greater than what you have to put into it. Guys, this is just the reality of our hearts. We are treacherous, obsessively self-centered people because that's the nature of sin. We have looked at God, and that's what happened in the garden. When you read Genesis 1 through 3, Adam and Eve looked at God and basically said, you will no longer be the center. We want to be the center. We want to be like God. We want the glory. We want to make our own decisions. We don't want to serve you. We want you to serve us. We no longer want the burden of relationship with you, although we want the benefit of relationship with you. So give us the benefit without the weight of of, of submission. Why did the Levites need to be conquered? Because their hearts were enemy territory. God ultimately came to conquer. The incarnation was an act of war. It was a declaration against our treacherous, treasonous, self-centeredness. It was God basically saying, you have tried to substitute yourself for me. I am not going to substitute myself for you. I'm going to take your place in your shame, in your sin, and I'm going to die for you so that you can be redeemed. That's an act of war against our rebellion and an act of love that is designed to provoke within us love and response. He came... To captivate, and in captivating, he comes to bless, and ultimately give us and them back to ourselves, to our community, to our families, for God's glory and for our good. What God is saying is that this is the way it's going to work with you. We think about the incarnation. I mean, just pause for a moment. Um, The profound nature infinite all-creator God contained in a small body, a jar of clay, the source of life born to die, the one who holds all things together by the word of his power, being held up by the frail hands of a young mother. And when Jesus was born, he wasn't born into a family of love. Did his family love him? Yes, as as best as they could in their earthly love, but their earthly love was still tainted by their cosmic treason. The mother who held him and nursed him and cared for him herself needed to be redeemed and restored because she was a traitor against God. He was born into hostile territory. He was born into a family that ultimately in their own nature would hate him and destroy him. But through his radical act of humility and self-giving and generosity. He won back for them and for us what they could never win for themselves. The manger scene is anything but cute. It is profound. It's the act of a warrior God coming to war for us. And in taking us captive, his purpose is to set us free. Now, there are going to be some that that language in itself is threatening. (laughs) Some of you are like, dude, I only come to church twice a year, and that's why. (laughs) That doesn't sound safe to me, right? I might be back on Easter. We'll see. Um, And I'm not making fun of you if you're a visitor at all. I get that. That's what I'm saying. I get it. It doesn't sound safe. But what I want you to hear is that it's not. If by what you mean by safe is protecting your own view of your own life. If by what you mean safe is, is I want God to forgive me, but I don't want God to mess with me. If by what that is what you mean, I want the benefit of relationship with God without the burden of relationship with God. That's not the way it works. The moment you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, He will take you captive. And he will tell a better story for your life than you would tell for yourself. And you're not always going to like it in the moment, but you will like it in the end. Because in taking you captive, he is setting you free. And he loves you enough not just to forgive you, but to redeem you and to restore you. It's not safe. If by what you mean by safe is you stay in control... And you get to call the shots. But what you're doing is trusting the one who is both good and in control. And ultimately saying to him, take me captive. Change my heart. Set me free. Realign my appetites so that I no longer crave the enslavement of my addictions. Set me free so that I crave the things that are truly worth craving. True freedom is not getting everything we want. True freedom is wanting the things that are truly good. That's what God does. He realigns us. He recreates us. He takes us captive. And then He sends us back so that we might receive the blessing of that walk and others might receive the blessing of that change within us and He might receive the full glory. In fact, if you take a look at verse Seven, we're kind of working our way backwards through our passage this morning. We're going back to verse seven. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Grace was given to each one of us according to Christ's gift. Um, this verse is talking about the unique grace Grace comes to all of us as believers of Christ. We're saved by grace through faith. It is God's unmerited pouring out of his unmerited, undeserved favor. John tells us as believers of Christ that we, when we look at God, we get grace upon grace. And what that means is that it doesn't matter. If it's like standing in the surf. The waves never end. There's always another wave of grace. God's in a position of the outpouring of his generosity for all of eternity. As a follower of Christ, is grace upon grace. And and we all stand in that, but there's a unique way in which that grace visits visits each one of us. That there is a unique way that that grace empowers and changes us individually. Last week, we we talked about how this whole passage centers around the first command in in, um, chapter 4, verse 1, where it says, Walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. And last week, we looked at that idea that, that what that means is that we need to walk in humility. A radical walk where we're no longer fighting for our own glory, we're no longer fighting for our own name, we're fighting for God's glory, we're fighting for His name. It allows us to walk with others who are very different from us, but still be unified with people who are different from us. We have a cause that unites us that is greater than the things that separate and divide us. But in that unity, it was never God's point to make unanimity, where we were all just like each other. God's purpose was never to simply erase the differences, right? Sometimes churches, I think, miss the mark because they make the wrong thing the center. Like, you got to look like me and talk like me and sound like me and have the exact same thoughts as me and, and the same haircut as me and all those things that, that somehow pretty soon everybody around looks like the exact same thing. And, and, and the thing that unites us is Christ. And when the thing that unites us is Christ, we will be unified in key ways and we will be radically diverse in others. Why? Why? Because God is the model of both unity and diversity. God is a trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, radical unity, one God made up of three who's. There is a radical diversity in which that diversity is valued and fostered. Out of God comes the simplicity of a message like the gospel. And out of God comes the complexity of all of the beauty in the created order. Unified in a single purpose of glorifying God. Radical unity, radical diversity. God gifts us in that diversity uniquely and values our unique differences. Think about it like an orchestra. Uh, If you had an orchestra leader who was determined to make sure that that all of his orchestra players were on the same note, and I mean that literally, (laughs) like they all played the same note all the time, That wouldn't be a very good orchestra. Um, They wouldn't get very many people watching. They'd have unanimity. They'd be the most unified orchestra, I suppose, but it would be incredibly boring um, and probably annoying, to tell you the truth. See, the point of an orchestra is that you take many notes, but you harmonize them into a single melody. You take many people, and you put them together in a way that uniquely glorifies God. Unity in diversity, valuing the diversity while putting a premium on the unity. And that's the point of the verse. We all share of the same grace, but that grace uniquely empowers, impacts, and changes us individually. And he does that through the giving of gifts. That's what he says at the end of the, the verse, where he says, but grace was given to each one of us individually, uniquely, according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, Paul is alluding to what we often call spiritual gifts. Uh, the Greek word charisma um, is the root from which we, we, you know, if you're in the Christian circles, you've heard of charismatic churches. It's the same root. Why are they called charismatic churches? Because they put so much emphasis on specific gifts of the Spirit. And so they become known by that. And I've had some people ask, well, hey, Steve, is Trailhead a charismatic church? The reality is, in the most biblical definition, absolutely. We believe the Holy Spirit, God Himself, uniquely gifts every follower of Christ with a unique set of talents, skills, abilities. He wires them in unique ways that they can then use those gifts for the good of the body. That God empowers those gifts supernaturally. Some of you be been wondering, you know, if we're talking about personal strengths, why do we call them gifts? Well, first of all, because they are given to us by God. Everything we have is given by God and your strengths, your unique strengths are given by God. But we're talking about here, not just unique natural talents, but things that are supernaturally developed within us as followers of Christ to be used for God's glory and the good of others. In the same way, God took the Levites and gave them back to the people. For his glory and their good, God equips us and sends us back for God's glory and our good. And those gifts don't make sense unless they're given away. God's gifts were never given to us to hoard, to protect. God's grace is a lot like manna in the Old Testament. Manna in the Old Testament was this this flaky stuff that would come down from heaven when Israel was going through their wilderness wanderings. They gathered it daily, and God said, Don't try to save it for tomorrow. If they tried to save it for the next day, it would spoil, it would go bad. They had to regather it every day. And in some ways, grace is like that. Grace was never intended for us to simply get it and then sit back with it and hold it to ourselves. Like, Like, I've been forgiven. Like, I'm a believer, I've been forgiven, and now I'm just going to kind of sit back and wait for God to take me home. It doesn't work like that. Grace's best benefits come from giving them away. We were never designed to be uh, um, containers of grace. We were designed to be conduits. And as God's grace comes into our life and we naturally generously share it with others, we receive and experience the best benefits of that grace. So God gives us these gifts. He wires us in these unique ways so that we'll give them away. Now, there's different lists of of gifts in the New Testament, different lists of of, of the way God empowers people uniquely. And and some of those get a lot of attention because they either get a lot of debate or they're they're very controversial or whatever. And some of those gifts are gifts like healing and and tongues and prophecy. Some of the gifts are, are actually much more mundane, if you want to call it that way, although very powerful. Scripture talks about the gift of encouragement, the gift of generosity, the gift of leadership, the gift of administration, the gift of teaching. So here's the deal. Not everyone gets the same gift. But all the gifts come from the same Spirit. And they all only make sense in the context of community. These gifts make absolutely no sense if they're not being used for the good of others. What good is the gift of helps if you only help yourself? What good is the gift of encouragement if you're only uttering mantras of self-encouragement? What good is the gift of prophecy if you're only speaking the truth to yourself? All of these gifts are given for the purpose of actually benefiting the people around us. God captivates us. God changes us. God sends us back for our blessing, and for the blessing of others. And that is the mission of the incarnation. God became man that he might redeem and restore, that he might call us out of our sin, give us new identities in Christ, forgive us and then empower us and send us out to become channels of grace, conduits of grace in the lives of people around us, believers and unbelievers. And here's the deal. These gifts only grow in value as you give them away. The more you give them away, the more valuable they become to you because you experience them on a deeper and deeper level. And it allows you to enter more deeply into the well of grace. All right, so what does this mean for us today? How can we apply this today? So a couple applications as we kind of wrap up and specifically think about this week. Um, The first is this. The greatest gift we can give, not, not just at Christmas, but definitely at Christmas. The greatest gift we can give is ourselves. What's the greatest gift God gave us? It wasn't forgiveness. That's a pretty great gift. It was what forgiveness gives us. That's a new relationship with God. The greatest gift God can give us is himself, the source of life, the source of all blessing, the source of all joy. And he designed us to imitate him, to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel means we give ourselves. The greatest gift you can give is yourself. It's also the most costly, the riskiest, the one that will take the most energy. It's really easy to go on Amazon and buy a present, and I'm not downgrading that. Do that. (laughs) But that never substitutes for the true gift. So this week, you guys, um, let me just give you an encouragement. Give the gift of yourself. We are a culture addicted to distraction. I I had this week, um, I'm preaching out of my own sin here. Um, This week, you know, sitting at dinner, got my phone, right? And I look up and I see Lauren's face and I know that I've just missed an opportunity. She wanted to talk about something. She saw me engaged in the phone We're addicted to distraction. We're distracted by things that buzz and beep and bell and whistle and tweet, things that flash, things that, you know what I'm saying? Like we are visually, visually stimulate me. Auditory, you know, it's like, so we got computers and iPads and TVs and stereos and iPhones and and, and not just iPhones. And now we got like the whole world of distractions right there on our phone, right? We can do everything from watch a movie to kill zombies to, I mean, anything you want to do, it's all right there. You know, this week, let's just turn them off. Let's just turn them off. If you are a productive person, not everybody is, (laughs) some of you are addicted to productivity. This week, turn it off. Give the gift of yourself, spend time, engage in conversation, laugh, be uncomfortable but accept God's grace to carry you through that. Don't escape. Don't run away when it gets hard. Some of you, your family situations, this is going to be a challenging week. Let God's grace fuel your presence. Drink deeply of the grace of God and of his presence and his love and let that flow out of you into the relationships around you. God has taken you captive in order to send you back as his missionary of grace. Be present. And secondly, as you're present, and as you give presents, do it from the right motives. Give out of gospel-fueled generosity, and not from greed or guilt. You know, when we give from greed, right? When we give from greed, we give to get, right? Sometimes we do that, let's be honest. We give to get. We know that I have to give a gift to get a gift, uh, the better gift I give, the better gift I get, right? And for some of us, it's, it's not even the gift we get back, right? We give the gift because we know it's going to provoke a certain response in somebody. And I want that response. And so I give the gift that I know is going to provoke the response, right? Well, that's not bad. No, it's not bad. It's not bad. You want to make people happy. But, but realize this, that that is, in fact, a form of greed. If that's your primary motivation, you're only acting out of self-centered greed. And we do this all the time. We even do it with God, don't we? It's like, God, I'll give this up if you. God, I'll do this if you. Like we're bartering with God. I will give to get. The motivation there is greed. But guilt's no better. Some of you give because you're just driven by guilt, like nonstop, right? The, the, the give to get thing was made popular with the, in the Christian circles, with the, with the prosperity gospel circle, the people who basically said, the more you give, the more God's going to give to you. So just give everything away because then you'll drive a Mercedes. God will replace your Volkswagen. Give it away. He'll give you something better. Right? That's prosperity. It's greed, right? Sanctified greed. Well, there's a new thing, the, the poverty gospel, which is driven by guilt. We give because we've got. I've got too much, so I have to give more away. Well, how much is enough? It's never enough. Because you're always going to have more than somebody. And so you're driven by guilt, and and being driven by guilt, you give because you've got. And you need to realize that neither one of those are gospel, grace-centered motivations. Why do we give? We give because everything we have was given to us. That's why we give. We give because we are grateful. That's why we give. We are grateful to the God who gave everything that we might be taken captive that we might be given a new identity, that we might be given a new purpose, that we might be given a well of grace that is deep that we can draw from. We give because everything we have was given to us. Take time to remind yourself of your true blessings in Christ, that you have a Savior who humbled himself and was willing to become a baby. And not just any baby, But that baby, a baby born into enemy territory, into the hands of traitors who would crucify him so that he might deliver you, take you captive, set you free, pour out his blessings on you, and give you every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, the key to every other blessing in life. That's the God who takes you captive When that fills our vision, that fills our heart with gratitude. When our hearts are filled with gratitude, we are filled with generosity. A gospel-fueled generosity that's not about what we get or guilt about how much we have. It is purely designed or motivated ultimately for the glory of God and for the joy and the good of others. And it makes us radically generous with our time, with our talents, with our treasure. As we fill our vision with a God who gave us his all, his best, when we were at our worst, so that he could forgive us and redeem us and restore us, it will unleash within us a generosity and gratitude that will ultimately enable us, catch this, it will enable us to do the things that seem impossible for us to do. It will allow you to move through, not just this week, but every day, of suffering and difficulty, of disappointment and of letdown. Without becoming self-centered or full of pity or angry, it will keep you full. Keep you full. The well never runs dry because God's grace never ends. And if you fill your vision with the greatest benefits of the gospel, it allows you to move forward with generosity. All right, guys, I'm going to put a scripture up on the screen for our reflection time. Um, normally I put up a set of questions to lead us in our reflection time. And today I'm just going to put up a scripture. I'm going to ask you to spend a little bit of time reading it, meditating on it, praying about it. Let God speak to you in it. Um, before we go into our time of response, though, um, and communion, we're going to take this quiet time. We're also going to take up our offering. Um, this is a chance for our members and regular attenders to give joyfully, sacrificially. Um, we partner together as the people of God to fund the advancement of the gospel through our local church if you're a guest with us uh, please don't feel obligated to give we would like you to give us the worship response card that's in your bullet and let us know you were here you have prayer requests fill it out we would love to pray with you and for you Um, let me pray for us and then we will uh we'll go into a time of reflection father i thank you that you are a great and glorious god And that you are immeasurably generous. You have given us all the things that are truly valuable by paying the price we could never pay. Lord, your plan to bless is overwhelmingly good. And I pray for our hearts. That our deepest appetite for love, for satisfaction, for success, that our deepest appetites might be fed by the true food of your love through the gospel and that we would be set free from the lesser appetites that seek to enslave us. And that in that place, we, Lord, might be able to celebrate community, family, blessing, freely and joyfully. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. Yes, take a few minutes and pray. We'll take communion in a moment.